So I kind of came into this upsurge yes. of sporting activity within the school. And of course, uh, having had, uh, I had played Irish games uh, before I came, played mm-hmm. themselves, I had coached soccer. Mm-hmm. So I was in, in that frame of yeah. sports. So when I came in, it was very easy for me to fit in. Now, the local area here is not very noted for football or soccer. Yeah. As you probably know, you know, most of the yeah. soccer players come from other parts of the country. So sports, football wasn't big. It was in the school, they had a football team, but it wasn't one of the, the, the really iconic sports in the school. Secondly, there was a, uh, of course, there, there, had, there was an athletics program going back for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Remember, um, Mike Boyd was a student in the school mm-hmm. and he had won a bronze medal mm-hmm. in 1972. That's oh, four okay. years before I came. Hmm. So we already had an Olympic medalist associated with the school. Yeah. So it, does, it goes back even to the 1960s. Mm-hmm. The first secondary school cross country that was ever organized was organized in Nairobi mm-hmm. uh, um, in 1967. Yeah. And uh, the first national champion was a boy from St. Patrick's uh, called, oh, okay. called Paul Chirop. And so, I'm just talking about the tradition was already there yeah. in sports. When I came, the main coach, there were a couple, remember, we also kind of cross-coached. Let's mm-hmm. say the fitness man would help out with the basketball, he'd help yeah. out with the uh, volleyball, and the volleyball man yeah. would help. So there was kind of a lot of interaction, yeah. even though we might have had one coach assigned to the team and to instructions and to mm-hmm. tactics. Everybody helped. So. I kind of came into a situation also where um, a number of teachers, the, the man who came with me, there was a brother, mm-hmm. William Lynch, he came with me, he got involved in sports, he, later on he took on the tennis team yeah. and became a, a very formidable tennis coach and he hadn't studied tennis before yeah. he came. <laughs> I'm sure Norman Thompson hadn't studied basketball before he came. Mm-hmm. but. It was enthusiasm, and that was a common thing in those days in schools. If you were a teacher, you didn't necessarily have to have a qualification to become a coach. You just had to have an interest and a passion yeah. for it. So uh, there was a teacher called Peter Foster, teaching in St. Patrick's mm-hmm. when I came. And he was um, one of the men in charge of the track team. And, um, he had come the year before in 1975 and he was leaving in 1977. He had a two-year yeah. stay. So I came in the middle. Yeah. Now, he came from uh, Newcastle, mm-hmm. from a place called Gateshead in Britain. And the very week I came in July yeah. was the week of the Montreal Olympics mm-hmm. in 1976. Mm-hmm. And his brother, Brendan, was on the British team. Uh-huh. Brendan Foster. So, of course, you know how interested he was, how enthusiastic yeah. his brother running for Britain. So, the following year, I thought, he, he asked me, he said, look, uh, maybe you're interested in getting involved. So, I, got, I went to competitions, I watched him coaching, I went to the local stadium here mm-hmm. to see how it's done. So, I kind of picked up a lot of things about coaching um, uh-huh. and how it's done. 
And remember again, we're talking about 46 years ago, almost around the world, with a few exceptions, there were iconic coaches, of course, around the world, but most coaching was fairly simple. Yeah. The, the sophistication we have today yes. wasn't there. Yeah. So a year after or so, uh, Peter Foster basically said to me, now you're in the athletic department, mm -hmm. but of course Norman Thompson was still there, Brother William Lynch was mm -hmm. still there, Brother Marcellus Broderick was still there. So we, I was still had a support, there was a support system when it came to, to the athletics. After five years, there was a program established for young Kenyan coaches under the auspices of the German government. That time it was West Germany. Yeah. We still had two Germanys. And they ran coaching courses in Kenya for young coaches. And that's the kind of the first time I really learned some of the um, technicalities of coaching, yeah. technical things. Uh, and I, I, because of that, I, I kind of picked up a little bit and gained a bit more confidence. I was also able to refer back to my five years when I had no, not much direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I had valuable experience and observation and uh, understanding Kenyans, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. coaching uh, techniques and all that. But, um, and the gentleman who organized those programs stayed in Kenya for five years, mm -hmm. from 1981 to 1986. So we became very good friends. Mm -hmm. So we shared coaching together. I went to read the courses that he offered mm -hmm. to learn about coaching. There were some guest speakers who came to talk about various uh, coaching programs and techniques of coaching. Uh, so I was gaining in more confidence. Also the kids that I was coaching, as they got a bit more exposure to the wider world of athletics, mm -hmm. began to impress, began to do well. Yeah. Kenya boycotted two Olympics. 1976, Montreal, mm -hmm. and 1980, Moscow. Why Montreal? Now, at that time, we still had apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. So the South African rugby team was whites only. Yeah. And New Zealand rugby team toured South Africa the exact month of the Olympics. Yeah. So that rubbed Africans yes. the wrong way in terms uh -huh. of participation. Yeah. They actually, the African teams went to Montreal, mm -hmm. but when New Zealand refused to withdraw or mm -hmm. cancel their tour of South Africa, yeah. the African countries said in Montreal, any Olympics where New Zealand are participating, we're not participating. Yeah. So they came home. Yeah. Oh, well. big blow to the Olympics and yeah. to and to and to and to some aspiring African athletes. Yeah, like Mike Boyd, I mentioned there. He had won a bronze. Yeah. Yeah. in in uh, in seventy two, and in eight hundred meters he was top of the world in seventy six, yeah. but had to come home. He he was the St. Patrick's player. Yes, correct. Yeah, he had to come home. So uh, that was him. Nineteen eighty, uh, Soviet Union invaded yeah. Afghanistan. Yes. And then, of course, the Soviet Union, Amer America, and other countries associated with the yeah. United States, including Kenya, 
didn't go to Moscow. Right. But then again, in '84, when we, we when you when the Olympics was in Los Angeles, the Soviet Union didn't go. Yes. <laughs> so it was a bit messy and a bit yeah. awkward around that time. However, I came in the middle of that, so to speak, which in a sense maybe had one advantage in that there was no great pressure to produce yeah. Olympians, mm -hmm. there was no major competitions. Remember the World Championships hadn't yet started, mm. they began in Helsinki in 83. Mm. Yes. So there was a, a gap, an opportunity for me. Yeah. Then when 84 came around, maybe it was a little wake-up call for me in that I went to, there was no junior championships at that time, mm -hmm. at, on an international level, remember. Mm -hmm. We didn't have world juniors until 1960, 86. Yeah. 86. Um, I, I entered my athletes for the senior trials for the Olympics. Yeah. They won. Two boys, two girls. Now, in the meantime, I'm, I, I was just this a back surprise to you? A little bit because I was still not sure yeah. the quality of my boys. Yeah, you know, can they really compete at a high level? They're still school kids, mm -hmm. so uh, I, you know, I, I even my own coaching experience was still only yeah. seven or eight years. Yeah, you see. Wow. In the meantime, and, and so these two, who are these? Who are these people? Who, what, what were their names? That uh, uh, they were twins, mm -hmm. identical twins. Wow. Kipko H uh -huh. and Charles. Yes, Charles, two of them. Cheruyat. You know how to spell Cheruyat? It is a fairly C H E R U I Y O T. Okay. Cheruyat. It's still common. You'll get, still get Cheruyats. Yeah. Actually, I think uh, the 1500 meter guy, Timothy mm -hmm. Cheruyat. Yeah. Same. Oh, okay. The guy, uh, uh, Timothy, who's gone to Oregon. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's a uh, world champion. He's defending world champion. What's his relation? Is any relation or just the same no, relation? no relation? Yes. No. Okay. No, no. And the girls were Salina, mm -hmm. Chirchir, C H I R, C H I R, mm -hmm. and Helen, Kimayo, K I M, A I, Y O. There were girls too. Correct. Now. Because St. Patrick's is all boys. Correct. I have to go back right. now. In the late 70s, <coughs> I was given the opportunity. There's a girls' school three miles, I'll put it in miles because of the yes. US, three yes. miles down the road uh -huh. called Singori Girls. Yeah. S I N G O R E. That mm -hmm. was founded and run by Irish missionary sisters. Yeah. Called the Missionary Sisters of the Holy Rosie. Mm -hmm. That was the name of the congregation. And in the late 1970s, I was given the opportunity to start coaching girls mm -hmm. in the girls' school. Very few girls ran when I came to Kenya. Mm -hmm. Only a handful here and there. Very few. Mm -hmm. So I kind of said, yeah, I'd like to see uh, how, how we can, you know, get a program going for the girls also. Mm -hmm. Genetically, if the boys can run, the girls can <laughs> run, you know, they're, yes. and they're from the same background, the same lifestyle mm -hmm. in a sense. So luckily, and that time, there were, let's say, some taboos mm -hmm. about girls running. Mm -hmm. uh, people uh, would 
doubt. Can girls really long, run long mm-hmm. distance? People would question cultural aspect of a girl running. Uh, people would, uh, even the uniform, they wore long dresses mm-hmm. that time before they, when they ran in competitions. Um, there was the belief among some people that when women, uh, young women, train and use a lot of energy in training and very physical mm-hmm. activity, that it reduces their capacity to conceive. Yeah. So all these myths mm-hmm. surrounded women athletics. Um, and of course, it, a woman's place was in the home yeah. <laughs> yes. type of thing, not, mm-hmm. not on a track. And mm-hmm. at that time, remember, the sport was amateur, so uh, they might have been asked, what value is it to a girl? Also, you need to remember that at that time, not all girls went to secondary school. Mm-hmm. There were very few secondary schools. and. Mm-hmm only a small percentage of girls because sometimes they saw it as uh, well girls they're going to finish their education and then get married and stay mm-hmm. in the home yeah so there's not much point in educating them to a high level yeah mm-hmm. there's kind of no future in it yeah for the family so when uh, when it came to uh, the crunch boys would be educated more than yeah. girls so anyway I, I a bit on spec I start I, I went to Singori and started coaching yeah. Luckily, within two years, two girls from Singori yeah. were in the Olympic team. Yes. Selena and Helen. Uh-huh. They were both students in Singori. Olympic. These are these yes. Are Los Angeles Olympics, '84. And 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 then. And um, the same. Charles and. Los Angeles Olympics. Yeah. Charles and who, who, who's the Kip other? Koich. K I P. Kip is his Kip, first name. Kip Koich. K I P. Okay. Kip Koich. Wow, so you had four in the LA Olympics. On the Kenyan team. And not just and they were any all four. Your, your, your there were still them. students in the school. Wow. There were still high school students. How old were they? Um, um, I suppose the two girls would have been 16. Yeah. Stroke, stroke 17. That time yeah. ages were a little bit difficult because the, yeah. there were no accurate... Mm-hmm. very accurate um, records yes. of ages mm-hmm. and the boys might have been 17, 18 yeah, wow yeah. so they went to Los Angeles well, one made the final, that's it yeah. uh, the Kip coach made, uh, sorry, yeah, Charles made the final of the 5000 meters yeah. now at the time they were both world junior mm-hmm. record holders yeah Kipkoich had run. Uh, Kipkoich had run um, uh, three thirty-four point nine yeah. in the fifteen hundred yeah. as a schoolboy. Yeah, wow. And Charles had run thirteen twenty-six mm-hmm. as a schoolboy mm-hmm. in five thousand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Charles was sixth in the final. So that was kind of. For me, uh, kind of to see that these kids can make it on the international scene yeah. was a kind of an affirmation of some of the work that I was doing. Yeah, you know, and the program we had in place. Um, Los Angeles was one of the first Olympics to make a profit. Yeah. 
because I think I forget the name of the man now but they put a very top-notch businessman yeah. in charge of the Olympics yeah. as opposed to just a, 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 a sports person yes. you know, a man who knew how to run a business yeah. so they made money and I believe some of the money that was made was used two years later to organize the World Under 20 Championships in 1986 mm -hmm. in Athens, Greece the first world under 20s what we now call junior is no day of to the junior mm -hmm. okay it's really under 20 and that they held it in Athens because that was the first olympics stay that was the venue of the first yes. the modern olympics yes so uh, now by that time 1986 i was 10 years in kenya mm -hmm. and i was maybe being recognized as a schoolboy coach yeah because i'd already produced olympians and yeah. various people and we had world yeah. junior champions so the federation asked me to assist in the selection of kenya's first junior team and kenya were allocated 12 places in the first juniors you were allocated according to the the, the athletic standing of your country in world yeah. in the world standing, so they were allocated twelve places. So you need to remember also in roughly in the in gradually in the nineteen eighties, track and field was becoming professional. Yeah. Before that, it was an amateur sport, very amateur. Now it is becoming professional. So this might have been a step in the direction of professionalism also. Yeah. Yes. So I was asked to assist in selecting the Kenyan team and maybe I was a little bit biased <laughs> but out of the 12, nine of them were from my group okay. and three were from the rest of the country. Yeah. And I suppose... That, was that nine from St. Patrick's? And Singori. Oh, in Singori, yes. Yes. Maybe we justified ourselves because out of the 12 athletes, we won four golds and four silvers. Wow. So that was kind of another affirmation mm -hmm. that our youth program was working. Mm -hmm. Then one of the athletes who won a silver in Athens in 1986 was Peter Rono. Yeah. And then two years later in Seoul, I had my first gold medalist, Peter Rono. Uh -huh. he, he won the 1500 in Seoul. The first Olympic champion. Were you there? No, I've never been to Olympia. <laughs> okay. um, then basically took off from there. Now, so I was kind of now, let's say, established as a coach, mm -hmm. at least within Kenya. Yeah. Uh, the sport was getting more and more professional. My concentration up to then was in two schools, mm -hmm. St. Gory Girls, St. Patrick's Boys. So I did a little bit of thinking and said, now that the sport is professional, other kids who are talented might like to benefit yeah. from this idea of it being a career, making a living out of the sport, etc. So I opened up my program to the whole county. Yeah. 
and even eventually beyond. Yeah. Because I had already kind of a program in place. I had a good idea of coaching, and I knew what kind of what I was doing. You know. So I said, now I can afford to expand. So now I <coughs> latched on to several other schools in the area, which gave me a much bigger catchment yeah. for talent, catchment area. So that's, and now that the sport was becoming professional also, I could get people, we'll say before that time when the sport was not professional, you generally, uh, you almost certainly, you had to get a job. Mm -hmm. To support your family, yeah. support yourself, whatever. And the options were, wherever you got your job, that's where you trained. Mm -hmm. If you got a job in Nairobi, you had to train in Nairobi. If you got a job in Kisumu, you had to train yeah. in Kisumu. And the options for jobs were the forces, the armed forces, mm -hmm. the police force, yes. and the prisons force. Mm -hmm. They were the three main forces. Mm -hmm. Also, the parastatal bodies in Kenya, Kenya Power and Lighting, Electricity, mm -hmm. Kenya Post and Telecommunications, mm -hmm. Kenya Ports Authority, Kenya Railways, yeah. all had teams. Mm -hmm. So when kids were finishing school and they had talents, they recruited them into these yeah. parastatal bodies mm -hmm. to join their teams. That's interesting, because so many runners I've talked to are associated with military or police. Correct. Yes. But now, the parastatals were there. They're gone now. They were there. Yeah. The parastatals no longer have teams. A few mm -hmm. have here and there. Yeah. But the, the impact they have now is minimal compared to what they had yeah. then. So, these were the options. Mm -hmm. Now, when the sport became professional, it upset that balance mm -hmm. a bit, because now because prize money came in for running, mm -hmm. sponsorship, mm -hmm. shoe contracts, <laughs> agencies, managers, endorsements, yeah. the, the whole business side of the sport came in. I can't imagine not having that. You know, I, don't, I can't imagine a yeah. world where you don't have that. Well, you know, in <laughs> a sense, <laughs> you could argue, you know, that kids and people, athletes in general, they ran for the love of their country, yeah. for the honor, for the, the, the status it gave them in life, for the, um, the, the opportunity to travel, represent their country. So, you know, it was kind of very you know, pure, let me use the yes. word, it wasn't tainted with yeah. other more uh, mundane yes. <laughs> motivators, yes. you know, kind of thing, in that yeah. sense, you yeah. know. So it, it, it also had its, uh, had its uh, benefits, in a sense. So now the athletes, when the sport became professional or was in the process of becoming professional, the athletes could, um, you could now train in your place of choice. Mm -hmm. I can, where, can, where, where do I want to train? I'm okay, I have a shoe company contract. I have enough money to support me. Mm -hmm. Let me go full-time and I can make more money, <laughs> mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. you know? So, many of them said, why not E10? Yeah. That's where I grew up. That's noted for athletics. Mm -hmm. uh, St. Patrick's E10 is a center of mm -hmm. athletics. 
So many of them gravitated towards E10. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of was the origins of the growth of E10 yeah. as a center, even aside from St. Patrick's. When I came to E10, e- <coughs> remember, E10 was only St. Patrick's. Mm-hmm. There was no village. <laughs> it was only the school. So if yeah. you mention E10 to anybody outside, yeah. they'll say, oh, St. Patrick's. Yeah. Now they might mention athletics. Yeah. You know, uh, aside Training from camps, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it has taken on a new dimension. So I, I think that, so the, uh, Iten gradually grew in the 1990s as a center. When I expanded my program to the wider community, I set up training programs for, just for young people, basically. Mm-hmm. And because of that, um, I had a much wider area, I said, a much bigger catchment area. And um, also, um, it spread the idea that we should start athletics from a youthful stage. We must develop people when they are young. And it kind of fitted in a little bit with my thinking because I came as a missionary for youth. Not for professional, yeah. iconic athletes. Yeah. And I kind of said that that is my vocation. That is the way I will have an impact on young people's lives. So let me try to keep that as my core yeah. in terms of um, uh, my, how, how I can see my work. Yeah, one of the things that I've been impressed with is that the Kenyan athletes age gracefully. I mean, Mary, you know, she's not obsessed with being young or being or in any other. No, she has accepted, she's accepted her role. It. Correct. And that's, she's she's that's now she's now a philanthropist. She's a businesswoman. Yeah. Uh, it's same with Isaac. Same with. Yeah. They've come to terms with no longer being the center of attraction even. Right. Mary, you know, you, Mary lives up and she goes to London, New York, you've yes. seen, and, yeah. and she's all oh, the press and the media. That's okay. And that's in its time and in its place. Mm-hmm. You handle that. But she's realistic. Yeah. I can't live this lifestyle for the rest of my life, you know. Yeah. There'll, there'll come a day when maybe I can walk down the street and nobody will recognize me. Yes. So what you know in a yeah. sense, yeah, you know. So, but you must be ready for that. You must yeah. be. You, you mm-hmm. must. You must come to terms with who you are and the situation in which you find yourself. So that's where I think, yeah, the training you get and the preparation you get. Yeah. So I kind of look at that as well. I so I take I take what you might call, in religious terms, a holistic mm-hmm. approach to my coaching. Yeah, in a sense. I never came out to Kenya. I never came to Kenya to produce iconic athletes. Yes. I came to Kenya to work with youth to give uh, give values in life, give life skills, give um, uh, ways that they can um, um, maximize their talents, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, be good people. Mm-hmm. 
good people. Be a good person. My motto is, I tell my aunt, be a good person before you become a good athlete. Yeah. Because you're going to be a person all your life. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're not going to be an athlete for 10 years, mm-hmm. short, a short term. Yes. So, and when it's all over, and some athletes do find, and you said that already with Americans, they find themselves when they step outside the athletic arena, uh, they're challenged. Mm-hmm. And we have some cases in Kenya, maybe in the US as well. Alcoholism. Yeah. You see, I, I'm no longer the superstar. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so, okay, so you're married and so going to church, uh, associated with school, your own family, your community, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, uh, life is bigger, should be bigger for you than being an athlete. Yes. Uh, and so that when, when the day comes, they can have a smooth transition, so mm-hmm. to speak, you know, and that's what you probably found with some of them. And I pay a good bit of time because I think that's my vocation. Mm-hmm. That's I'm not here really. That's what I said to you. I never went to Olympics. I'm mm-hmm. not interested in going to Olympics. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hello. I maybe because of some of the iconic athletes I helped to produce. I should be sitting in a big office and mm-hmm. be a director of sports or <laughs> drawing a big salary from a shoe company or so. I don't know. Yes. You know, in a sense. Yes. But that's not why I came to Kenya. Yeah. So I was never, I use the word, sucked into the higher yeah. commercial business side mm-hmm. and all the paraphernalia that surrounds it, mm-hmm. side of the sport. That's why people are amazed, why 46 years in E10? What are you <laughs> doing in E10? <laughs> you know, for who you are or for yeah. the contribution you have made. I said, I'm quite happy in E10. I think if you if you fulfill your own dreams yeah. and your own, you're satisfied with what you see and what you see your products mm-hmm. doing and becoming. Remember also, I have roughly 50 young people in my mm-hmm. youth program. Realistically, 10 of them maybe will become yeah. iconic athletes. 10 of them will become fairly good. They'll make mm-hmm. a living out of the sport. Mm-hmm. 10 of them will be on the periphery of the sport. Mm-hmm. They'll run, they'll make a bit of money, mm-hmm. they'll survive. But the other 20 mm-hmm. are going to have to become normal, mm-hmm. run-of-the-mill people. Yes. So, all 50 have a role in my program. Yeah. And I must keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. I don't say I'm going to sacrifice these yeah. for the sake of the few at the top. Yeah. And you're there just to serve the others basically yeah. no the program has to be structured in such a way that everybody benefits yeah regardless of even your level of ability yeah you know i have recently i had a young girl she just graduated from the armed forces mm-hmm. for training and she's from Beringo. she's not going to become an iconic athlete mm-hmm. she finished school I helped her family, mm-hmm. I helped her to school, I paid her school fees. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm only going to pay your school fees because you're eventually going to yeah. become an Olympic champion or something. Or you're going to be able to give, mm-hmm. give me something back. No. You take people at face at the value, mm-hmm. you know. You, you. So, 
she finished school. Mm-hmm. She got the opportunity to join the armed forces. Mm-hmm. She joined the armed forces. She has graduated. You probably know from moving around Eldoretti Ten that when one member of the family gets mm-hmm. into a stable employment, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the family depends on them. Yeah, they're the, they're the breadwinners. Yeah, she's the breadwinner yeah. for the family. They yeah. come from a very poor area of Beringo. Yeah. And the family are looking to her now mm-hmm. to educate her siblings, maybe to do something for her mm-hmm. parents, because uh, she, uh, they have nothing at home. Yeah. So now she's in the army. My assistant coach, Ian Caprono, who is mm-hmm. from Beringo, he went to the function. Yeah. And he could see the happiness, yeah. the, the celebration, the family feeling, uh, how, what our daughter has achieved. Mm-hmm and whatever. Now, and that to me is what it's about. Yes. It's easy to be on a high about a David Vidisha or a Wilson Kipketar. You don't have to be a genius (laughs) to be, to feel I have an athlete of iconic status. It's good and it's nice and that's their achievements, but I think you're, you're, as a missionary, your 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 fulfillment and your role should be I won't say more basic yeah. but certainly open to everybody yeah. regardless of who they are mm-hmm. you know and and I think that that that's so that what I'm saying now basically is also the spirit of St Patrick's mm-hmm. you know I'm connected with the school mm-hmm. because I was in I was so lucky mm-hmm. to land in a place like St Patrick's yeah which had all those elements mm-hmm. that I've spoken about. Yeah. And I was given the opportunity to work in that framework. Yeah. Uh, I gradually began to kind of, let me look beyond, mm-hmm. let me push out the boundaries again, as I did in the case of girls. Mm-hmm. Let me look at it. And that's how I stumbled upon David Vidisha. Mm-hmm. He's a Maasai. Yeah, wow. He comes from 200 miles away from yeah. here. So, in a sense that I kind of... Now the Maasai's are yeah. picking up a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, the Marraquettes mm-hmm. up here. Also, mm-hmm. uh, the world record holder for Marathon, yeah. Bridget Cascade, yes. is a Marraquette. Mm-hmm. See? 214. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For women. So, I'm just saying that uh, I, I, I also help maybe to break some taboos about women mm-hmm. running. Yeah. Through sport. Through sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I saw what I, what I could do through sport. Mm-hmm. And the place to do it was among the young. Yes. Young people. That, that's where you lay the foundation. Yeah. Uh, okay, some went on later to be successful. Some didn't go on to be mm-hmm. so successful. Some maybe ended up even with problems and issues. Mm-hmm. But these are some of the, you know, the, that's, that's the way any program will go. But I always, and what kept me going also throughout 46 years mm-hmm. was the fact that you bring a certain group and uh, people through the system mm-hmm. and they either become professional athletes or they go, go to college in the US mm-hmm. and get an education, or they get into the armed forces mm-hmm. and get a job, 
they settle down in life, they become involved mm-hmm. in their local community like Mary Kaitang. Mm-hmm. And then another group, I'm challenged mm-hmm. again with another group coming along yeah. the line. You know, so you're all the time kept renewed. You're all yes. you're renewed the whole yes. time and challenged. So there's a there's a new challenge around the corner all yeah. the time that yeah. keeps you going. So in a sense, you must put aside, we'll say, all the experience and knowledge and technology yeah. that you have and go back down to the level of the athlete. And I always tell my young coach, when you have a young talent emerging, forget about who you are as a coach. Enter the world of the athlete. And you grow again as a coach as the athlete grows as an athlete. Yeah. Hmm. You basically grow together. And the athlete then feels you're with them, you're on their side, they're sharing in the in their own development. Mm-hmm. You're only just giving a little nudge here and there as you go along. But the athlete is feeling he's doing the work, she's doing the work. They mm. also feel that they're part of the program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many people who will coach athletes, I think, of course, they work out very meticulously uh, the type of program they're going to do and the training sessions and down to Mm -hmm. some detail and that's okay if your athlete is brought up in that environment but for me like I would say to David Mm Vadisha don't you, you're not an observer in your development mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not yes. you're, you're not a spectator I- in your life <laughs> you're a participant yeah. so I want you to participate in your growth as an athlete yes I want you to be part of your own growth. I want to yeah. understand I want you to understand who you are as an athlete yes. so you must become part of the program yes mm-hmm. you must understand you must internalize what the program is about and if you're not comfortable or you don't feel it's the mm-hmm. best we discuss it yeah so I would David lived on my compound mm-hmm. a few meters from my house yeah I might go there at uh, half an hour before his training session yeah. in the morning and I'd say oh David how are you you know how did you sleep mm-hmm uh, how is the health? Any um, consequences of, or uh, from yesterday's session? Mm-hmm. Uh, how you know? The, you know. So I'd I'd come at the training session a little bit yeah. by giving him the opportunity to share. And some days he might say, "Oh, I didn't sleep well last night. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a good night." And I might have in the back of my head, "We're going to do a real mm-hmm. tough session today." Then I pull back a little yeah. bit and I realize. Uh uh-uh, uh, take it easy today. Yeah. Another day, he's up. Yes. So, yeah. I, I I think that that uh, would, you know, the, he felt after a while, uh, and I suppose one of the things I can say about him as an 800 meter runner is he became a kind of a, a great student of the event. Yeah. He knew what 800 meter running is all about. He knew uh, how to approach it. He knew even the type of training. 
So, back again, I never went to the Olympics. People would say, did you not have to be there? Did you not feel mm -hmm. you must? No, because the way David had trained and the way he participated mm -hmm. in his own training, I had every confidence yeah. that when David went to London, yeah. I won't say he didn't need me, but in a sense, he didn't need me. Yes. He knows exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. he, he, he is himself, so to speak. Mm -hmm. He's not looking over his shoulder at me for instructions mm -hmm. or tactics mm -hmm. or last-minute advice. Yeah. Some athletes may be yes, as you know. Yeah. The coach is there, you know. Mm -hmm. Be careful now because I saw this other guy in the semi-final. Yes. He's a danger and I noticed this guy has a big kick. Yeah. And, oh, you know, that's okay if that's yes. the way you, you interact with your yeah. athlete. I have no problem. But <laughs> David, of course, as you know, you probably saw the London race. Mm -hmm. Gone to tape. Yes. So yeah. there was... There wasn't much uh, instructions to be given. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think you know when you see. Yes. So I'm just saying that, um, and young people like that. You see, young people, uh, then they believe in what you do. Yeah. Then they feel they are part of what you do. Uh, and they, they, if they internalize, and not just even what you do, the vibes you give them. Yeah. Young people can pick up your vibes, mm -hmm. you know. Are you just a, an instructor? Yeah. Are you a mentor? Yes. You know? Instruction mm -hmm. is the easiest. Mm -hmm. I can hand you a piece of paper with a training program mm -hmm. and tell you go and do that. Mm -hmm. I'm practically always with my athletes because I think it's a person-to-person -person yes. program and a person-to-person -person approach, let me say that. Mm -hmm. um, so. All the athletes would, would, and any of them you meet afterwards, Bernard Lagat mm -hmm. or yeah. Isaac Sangok or whatever, whatever, they'll all tell you about that approach that you have and that, that yeah. um, um, uh, feeling they got yeah. of your passion for the sport. Yeah. It's like a te teaching is the same. Yes. Kids in your class, if you're a teacher, yeah. can very quickly pick up whether you're passionate yeah. about your subject. Yep, and whether you're passionate about them too. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And as I used to say to them, if you like the teacher, mm -hmm. you like the subject. Yeah. If you see the teacher is passionate yeah. about their subject, you are likely to latch on to that. And yes. the same with coaching. It's a, so I kind of, some of the things that I had in teaching, I uh, transferred yes. to coaching and vice versa. And, and you were, um, you, you stopped teaching at some point and you became a coach full-time, is that no, right? No, never became. I'm still, um, I coach and I only stopped, I use the word doing, I was in St. Patrick's first as a regular teacher, mm -hmm. then I was in St. Patrick's as a principal. Yeah. Yes. Coaching I, throughout. Okay. Never gave up coaching. Yes. Then there's a college, uh, a third level college down the road here. Mm -hmm. Which, ta which trains young teachers. Mm -hmm. And I was asked and uh, transferred by the ministry from St. Patrick's Seaton mm -hmm. to Tambach to become head of education. Yeah. So then I started a program in the college mm -hmm. of athletics. Yeah. And other programs as well. 
So I was head of education mm -hmm. there. Then when I finished with there, I continued working in the college doing, while I was in the college training young teachers, I thought a bit about my role as a lecturer in the college. We were teachers in thematics, we were lecturers because it was third level, the like university. So I, can't, I felt that I would like the students to learn a little bit more about the passion of teaching, mm -hmm. the interest of teaching, the love of teaching, mm -hmm. if you want to have an impact on young people's lives. So, and I got that opportunity because I was head of education. Mm -hmm. So I came up with a program called Education for Life. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that I would get my students to First of all, look at their own lives as young teachers. I'm away now from athletics. I, I, I was, as I'm talking about the teaching profession. Mm -hmm. But it spilled over. It was, mm -hmm. it was complementary with athletics. Um, I, the idea was to get them to say, look at your own life first as a teacher. Yeah. When you walk into a class, when you stand before a team and you're a coach, what do your athletes or your what do the kids see first in you? Mm -hmm. Before you even talk. Mm -hmm. Kids are waiting for you to say something. Kids are watching. Mm -hmm. Kids are already concluding certain things about you. So, as I used to tell them, you teach mm -hmm. who you are. Mm -hmm. That's what you teach. Yeah. You don't teach a subject. The first thing you teach is who you are. Mm -hmm. And kids pick up very quickly who you are. Mm -hmm. So when I wanted these young teachers to realize, look at who you are first mm -hmm. as a person. What have you to offer? Aside from all the knowledge you have about your subject, mm -hmm. what are they seeing in you? Yes. You know? Then my next 15 years, I spent doing that yeah. in the college. So. I only gave up in, uh, in, uh, as, a, as a teacher, as such, mm -hmm. uh, two years ago. Oh, yes. When the, COVID, when the COVID came. Yeah. Otherwise, about mm -hmm. it. <laughs> so, otherwise, I was uh, a coach and a teacher all my life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's no... There was, uh, yeah. Uh, now, of course, uh, I, I thought it was time for the new generation maybe to take over. But I'm still in the coaching, of course, yes. as you know. But um, not I'm, I'm doing less running around as a coach. You know, I have a young mm -hmm. assistant coach who is very yep. good, yep. very competent. Yep. And because of that, um, I want him to kind of uh, gain in yeah. confidence and being able to understand. But he has a good understanding of the program and of the way I approach things and um, so he, he's, he, that's basically what, uh, what I did but of course I will always attribute it to the principal of St. Patrick's when I came was very very supportive yeah. of any teacher in the school who would come up with any positive idea that would have a positive yeah. impact on the life of the students yeah. and that was great. I felt very confident that 
when I take up this or decide that, mm-hmm. I'm going to get support for the, yeah. for it. And 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 that's why that's why I I kind of but uh, I suppose uh, it's one way of doing it. The sport is now more professional. Um, I never got involved in the mm-hmm. professional side of it, so to speak. Even though I've coached a few mm-hmm. professional athletes like David Radish and that, uh, I was also very lucky in some of the kids who came along and uh, became iconic athletes but I'm equally as proud of the the ones who just made it in life yeah. as the ones who made it in the world yeah. of athletics yeah, that's true. You know? some people would say as a missionary or religious isn't that a very strange apostolate or vocation mm-hmm. to get involved in sports mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I suppose it can be. I mean, most missionaries are associated with teaching mm-hmm. and preaching and social work and all that kind of thing. And that's okay. Uh, but I say, for me, I also affect through, uh, I also feel that I've had a positive impact mm-hmm. yeah. through the, the way I did it. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, I was just using what was available to have an impact on people's lives, to give value to people's lives and to, to set up systems that, um, that um, people can benefit from. Would you yeah. say to build the kingdom? Pardon? To build the kingdom of God? Yes, of course. Yes. I, yes. Mean, I mean, that, that, that was my way of doing it. Yes. You know, it might be a bit unusual. I've had a couple of other religious who come to me and said, you know, uh, because it's a bit unusual mm-hmm. and say, um, you know, it's a bit unusual what you're doing, you, you know, uh, the, it's a strange way of being a missionary. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, yes. maybe I could have done it different, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I kind of saw sport as a connecting point with young yeah. people. Yeah. And I always say, maybe generally, two things really connect you with young people, sports or music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Nearly every kid is included in that package. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're not one, you're mm-hmm. the other. Yeah. You know. So I just kind of said, maybe if I wasn't a sports person, I'd have been a music yes. person, because I wanted something, some mm-hmm. way, of touching the lives and touching the interests and uh, getting kids on your side, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. You know. Now, of course, some people will say teaching in a classroom. If you're a very dynamic mm-hmm. teacher and you're, you're you're really you know you really can hype up the kids mm-hmm. about what you do and about the subject that you teach. Mm-hmm. Good, fair enough. But I also find, having been a teacher, that teaching can be a little bit mundane mm-hmm. and a little bit routine and repetitive, yeah. and because of the pressure of things like exams, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you can't afford to be t- to digress mm-hmm. too far from the yeah. the, the regimental uh, approach to teaching every day. Yeah. Whereas in sports, I think you have more leeway mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Um, be more flexible, mm-hmm. and also I think you have the opportunity to 
to uh, make the kids feel that you're with them, mm -hmm. you're one of them, mm -hmm. in a sense. Even though they know you're in charge and they know you're the yeah. person responsible for this and that, but at the same time, uh, you're not seen so much as a, for example, as a disciplinarian, like yeah. a teacher might have to be. Yeah. You know, I need discipline in my class. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, I think kids will will see you more and. I felt when I was principal of St. Patrick's, I was still the track coach. Mm -hmm. And the principal before me was the volleyball coach. <laughs> and mm. I think when you finished in the office being a principal during the day, and then you could go out and put on your track suit mm -hmm. and head off with the kids to a volleyball field yeah. or to a track, they kind of lost this distance that you yeah. keep as a... Yes. <laughs> as a principal yeah. from the kids you know sometimes you have to keep oh I must keep a little bit yeah. and I must keep aloof because I have to make uh, momentous decisions yes. about the life of the kid etc yeah. but when you went on the track or you, when you went yeah. on a volleyball court I think the kids didn't see you so much anymore yeah. as in the role of a principal they saw you as a coach or a friend yeah. so it also I think helped me a little bit to integrate a bit better with the kids yeah and um, to see me in a different light. Yeah. So yeah. there was also, you know, that, that was an, another aspect of the, the religious side of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and um, now when I look, of course, at my former students, whether you look at mm -hmm. them, and it's so nice to see them going on in life and coping with life and contributing yeah. to their communities and um, realizing that uh, what you gave them or what they learn from your mm -hmm. program is still a benefit to them beyond the sport. Yeah. Yes, well, Brother Combe, this has been an extraordinarily good conversation. I mm -hmm. think we've, got, we've been at it for an hour and a half. What? Yes. So, um, well, I, I just um, am so grateful that we could meet, and I think that um, your approach to coaching is something that will benefit people who hear this. I hope, I hope, I hope a wide audience uh, uh, hears this. I'll, I'll put it up on a podcast, so uh, and I'll send it no to problem. you. No problem. Yeah, I, 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 I share my story because you know it's just just a one man's view of yes. how something can be done. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of the Media Project a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.